KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. San Diego could be placed in the state's most restrictive coronavirus tier by the end of the week. That's according to data expected today from state public health officials. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher is urging San Diegans to respect any new business closures that may come down from the state. Right now in San Diego County, we need to focus our efforts on battling COVID and not seek out distractions and excuses to deflect us away from the difficult work we need to do. Fletcher criticized colleagues who are focused on fighting with the state over whether 700 cases from San Diego State University students should be considered in the total count. County supervisors met again last night in a closed session meeting to discuss their response should the state impose more severe restrictions, but no conclusion was reached. Jeff Kasha is the owner of Rudford's restaurant. He joined Supervisor Jim Desmond during a rally before yesterday's meeting, calling for more local control. Kasha says if he's forced to shut his indoor operations this week, he may defy the orders. We don't have a choice about not closing. Retaining the employees, we ran out of PPP money, we're into our savings, we've overspent, we've made no profit since March 16. Going to the purple tier would mean restaurants, churches, gyms, and personal care businesses would have to stop indoor operations completely. California is not accepting new unemployment claims over the next two weeks. The governor says the state's unemployment development department will be putting in new fraud prevention technology while they work to clear a backlog in claims. The reset period will end on October 5th. After that, the state will begin using new automatic ID verification software and will process backlog claims over the next 90 to 100 days. It's Tuesday, September 22nd. This is San Diego News Matters from KPBS News, a daily morning news podcast powered by everyone in the KPBS newsroom. I'm Annika Colbert. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The city of San Diego's chief operating officer is resigning. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says her departure comes amid a growing scandal surrounding a disastrous real estate deal. Chris Michelle announced her resignation in an email to city employees on Monday, and she didn't explain her decision. But Michelle has been a key decision maker in how the city has handled 101 Ash Street. 
The city signed a 20-year lease-to-own deal on the downtown high-rise in 2016, only to discover millions in renovation needs. The deal predated Michelle's hiring, but it was under her watch that the project's cost exploded. She also moved city employees into the building, only to evacuate them a month later due to asbestos. It's unclear when her position will be filled, since Mayor Kevin Faulkner will be replaced by a newly elected mayor in less than three months. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. An inmate is on the verge of death as one of the largest COVID outbreaks in the federal prison system continues to play out in downtown San Diego. The inmate's attorney claims lax precautions by the Bureau of Prisons could have contributed to the situation. KPBS's Max Revlin-Nadler reports. Victor Cruz, who's serving an eight-year sentence for drug possession, was on the verge of death Monday afternoon. The 47-year-old was diagnosed with COVID-19 while at the Metropolitan Correctional Center last month. Cruz is one of 196 cases of coronavirus at the facility. It's one of the largest active outbreaks in the federal system. Sandra Lechman was Cruz's attorney for his criminal case. In a motion filed Monday, Lechman says that another of her clients might be the person who started the outbreak at MCC. She says that client was taken to a local hospital for a routine medical procedure, even after the hospital told MCC not to bring him. According to the filing, her client got COVID-19 while at the hospital on August 18th and then brought it back to MCC. He was taken back and he was just mixed with his floor as if he had not left the facility. So as far as I know, no safety precautions were taken. The Bureau of Prisons and MCC's legal counsel did not respond to a request for comment. Max Rivlin-Adler, KPBS News. More undocumented immigrants in California are now eligible for a tax credit from the state. KQED's Katie Orr reports on a bill just signed into law. Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a measure to expand eligibility for the state's earned income tax credit, which benefits low-income workers. The new law removes the requirement that eligible undocumented filers must have at least one child under the age of six. Newsom's office estimates 600,000 additional people will now be eligible for the credit, which can reduce tax bills and may provide recipients with tax refunds. Advocates say the money is crucial for low-income workers, especially during the pandemic. I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. If you've ever driven State Route 52 between the 163 and 805, you know it can feel like a roller coaster. But KPBS's John Carroll says Caltrans is trying a new way to fix the highway, and they hope the new method will keep it smooth for years to come. A little more than a mile of SR-52 was built over a landfill, so it's been in a constant state of settling for decades. Caltrans has smoothed it out over and over, but none of those fixes have solved the problem long term. Now, they're trying something different. It's called compaction grouting. The process involves drilling more than 4,000 holes, each six inches in diameter. Caltrans engineer Sean Rizzuto says pipes are then put into the holes. And then we start pumping... um grout or cement and sand, and we create these grout columns, which stiffen the roadbed, and it doesn't allow for as much settlement. The $16 million project is expected to be complete by Christmas. Rizzuto says they tried the same method on a smaller section of SR-52 nearly four years ago, and it's held up well. John Carroll, KPBS News. A luxury high-rise apartment complex in downtown San Diego has become known for its wild house parties since stay-at-home orders were relaxed. iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Dulaney has more. 
Since May, calls to police about parties and other disturbances at Pinnacle on the Park have increased sixfold compared to last year. Here's what it sounded like outside the East Village high rise on a recent Friday night. Dozens of units are rented on Airbnb and other sites. That's not illegal, but the debauchery that follows is causing problems. Robin Spencer lives in the complex with her 12-year-old son. They shoot off fireworks from their balcony. They spit from the balcony. They throw glasses off the balcony. They have sex on the balconies and drop their condoms off the side, and they land on people's windowsills. The high-rise is also home to wealthy and low-income renters. Carlos Garcia used to live in the affordable housing section with his wife and three children. He moved out last month to escape. It's totally out of control, man. I mean, it's out of control, really. San Diego police say there are active criminal investigations at the high-rise. Pinnacle on the Park didn't respond to requests for comment. That was iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. iNews Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. A bill recently introduced in Congress would make sexual harassment a crime under military law. The measure is a response to the killing of Fort Hood Army soldier Vanessa Guillen this summer. Supporters hope the legislation will prevent more violent offenses and force a military culture shift. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Please join me in welcoming the Guillen family. The family of slain Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Guillen stood before the Capitol stony-faced and resolute, ready after months of battling the Army for answers about how it handled its investigation into the 20-year-old's case. Before Guillen went missing in April, she told her mother she was being sexually harassed by a fellow soldier, but was afraid to report it. Officials later discovered she'd been killed in an armory on post, then dismembered. The suspect later killed himself. Guillen's 16-year-old sister, Lupe, said the Army failed to protect her and kept their family in the dark about what was going on. It's disgusting how a part of an armor goes missing and they do everything to find it. But when it comes to a life like Vanessa's, they do nothing. A life is more valuable than an object. Life happens once and there's no going back. Surrounded by Guillen's sisters and her parents, California Democrat Jackie Speer, chair of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel, unveiled the I Am Vanessa Guillen Act. It's a long-awaited bill that defines sexual harassment and makes it a crime in the military. The Pentagon's own reports tell us that sexual harassment creates a climate that makes sexual assault more likely. This culture is broken, the rot has festered for generations, and the data proves what survivors have been telling us for years. What we have been doing is not working. Advocates and victims have long called for stronger action against sexual harassment and assault in the ranks. Under the current system, service members who grope, catcall, or create hostile work environments often don't face punishment. And when they do, it's usually a slap on the wrist without any lasting effect on their career. They may get a write-up in their file, but that may go away after a year. So the next assignment doesn't know they did it. That's Diana Danis, an advisor with the Women Veterans Social Justice Network. She says making harassment a formal crime will lead to more punishments and more victims coming forward with reports. But perhaps most importantly, it could discourage offenders from committing more violent acts like rape. Sexual harassment is a lead up because these are crimes of power and control in an environment 
that prides itself on good order and discipline. And good order and discipline very often takes advantage of vulnerable people between the ages of 18 and 24, which is the predominant age of people in the military. The bill also would take away commanders' authority to make prosecution decisions in cases of sexual harassment and assault. Right now, they have a lot of discretion over how those cases are dealt with. But that can create problems, especially when a victim is abused by someone higher up the chain of command. In a recent Pentagon survey, 64 percent of women who reported a sexual assault say they faced retaliation or backlash, most often from their superiors. Deshauna Barber is the CEO of Service Women's Action Network. You have, you know, cliques and groups of people that socialize with one another. And sometimes that does include people that's part of the chain of command or the person that you're actually reporting is your chain of command. And what if it is your commander or your, your, uh, your, the XO of the unit? What if it is your platoon leader, your platoon sergeant? You're, you're reporting to the person that's harassing you. You're, you're reporting to the person that's committing a crime. Under the legislation, sexual harassment and assault complaints would go before each service's chief prosecutor for review. And in the future, each military branch would be required to create a special legal office for handling and investigating those crimes. It's the latest in a long line of bills to try to change the military's legal structure. But as recently as July, military brass have pushed back, arguing for the integrity of the chain of command. That was Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up on the podcast, a conversation about being a journalist in 2020 with San Diego Union-Tribune's editorial and opinion director, Matt Hall. That's up next after this. Telling the story of 2020. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. It hasn't been easy. Journalists are covering a highly polarized election, clashing with law enforcement, and trying to overcome misinformation campaigns. And of course, all of this during a pandemic that has led to even more job cuts in the industry and most people working from home. To talk about all of this, KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer sat down with San Diego Union-Tribune editorial and opinion director Matt Hall, who is also, as of this month, the new president-elect of the Society of Professional Journalists. Here's that interview. Well, let's start with your new role. For those who don't follow the industry, what is the Society of Professional Journalists and what's your top goal as you prepare to lead this national organization? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, SBJ is an organization that has been around since 1909, so it has a long history. I'm the 104th president. There's 103 whose shoulders I stand on in this role and we're a national advocacy group. You know, we celebrate uh, journalism, we advocate for journalists, uh, and we hold the powerful uh, to account, right? So we're advocating for things like audio at the Supreme Court, at their hearings, helping PIOs do a better job at giving information out, especially in this pandemic, you know, and, and we're A to Z. We're a shop that helps do a lot of things for journalism. As, as president, my, my big goal this year, I guess there's a, a couple that I want to do. I want to 
I think this is a moment where journalists need to look internally at their shops, at their outlets, and make sure that they reflect their communities. Diversity and inclusion has always been important. But in this moment, that's something that I really want to bring to the fore. And I also want to reach out to our campus chapters and our young journalists. Like before I was sworn in, uh, I, I said on Twitter, look, I, I'm getting sworn in as, as president of this, of this group, and I'm really excited about it. I want to pay it forward. Uh, if there's 10 people out there who want to go to our con convention, I'll pay for their convention costs. Uh, and within 48 hours, 10 journalists had r raised their hand, mostly women, mostly journalists of color. And so I, I, I sponsored their uh, conferences and afterwards they all said it was amazing. So this is also a time for journalists to help other journalists, younger journalists, especially. Wow. I'll, I'll raise my hand. You can fly me first class. I'll get a nice hotel suite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, we don't have time today to cover all the challenges in the media, but in recent days, we've seen clear examples. Let's start with the incident last weekend in Compton, just north of here, where Josie Huang, a LA-based public media reporter, she was violently attacked and arrested while covering the shooting of two sheriff's deputies up there. How does an organization like SPJ advocate broadly for media rights, stand up for reporters in an incident like this one? Yeah, I was actually online when the first video of that incident came in. And so I personally started t tweeting at uh, LA uh, County sheriffs saying, you know, this is, we need a better explanation. Obviously that situation was involved in, uh, unfolding quickly. What happened to those deputies was horrific, but that's no excuse to throw a journalist around like a rag doll. She was whipped against a car and thrown on the ground and five deputies were on top of her. All the while, as you just said, she was saying, I'm a journalist. KPCC, I think she mentioned the organization about eight times. You know, we're here to support her. We're here to say that that is wrong and that the sheriffs need to be held accountable. Just today, the LA sheriffs shown a flashlight in uh, a TV reporter's camera as they were trying to film footage of an arrest. So I don't know what's going on in that department, but there needs to be a reckoning at that department that they, what they're doing is wrong. And, and we're here to stand up for all journalists. You know, we're doing, law enforcement has a job to do. We respect that. We understand that, but we have a job to do as well. Well, it's good SBJ is there for that because uh, these days, and of course, at any time, uh, the First Amendment is so uh, critical. And we've seen a lot of uh, this during protests over the summer. Is there concern of a trend toward law enforcement disregarding First Amendment rights when it comes to the media? I don't know if it's a trend. I mean, this has always been a, a point of friction. I mean, the, the two of us have different jobs. I think what's happening now is you're actually seeing a reckoning in media that the default story in an issue involving police should not be the police version. I think partly that that should have always been the case, but partly police have, uh, uh, departments have invited them that on themselves. And that trust is an issue, not only for the media, we've made some major self-inflicted wounds and we need to uh, uh, account for that, we need to correct our mistakes when they happen. But law enforcement has done that as well. And so now when you have an incident, journalists need to not just take the police view as the default, but hold up uh, everyone equally and, and make sure we get to the heart of the matter and the truth of the matter. Now, we're less than 50 days from this election, which certainly is an underlying current to everything we're talking about here. 2016 was a year of misinformation online. It shaped the opinion of a lot of voters. And this week we saw a one-day boycott of Facebook, heavily criticized for not doing enough to rein it in. How big of a challenge is misinformation and trust when it comes to having an informed public and a healthy democracy? Oh, it's huge. I mean, just this morning, I went uh, virtually and, and gave a presentation on fake news, real problem for an eighth grade humanities class at Golden Hill. Good. Um, this is an important thing that journalists need to realize. It's a it was a huge problem in 2016. It's only worse now. 
Um, I mean, it was proven that Russia interfered with, with the election. Misinformation is out there every day. Deep fake videos in which people um, twist video footage to make it look like something that didn't happen is happening. Journalists need to be aware of this, and the public needs to be aware of this. And it's not just misinformation this year. I think an important point that needs to be made is that with the pandemic and voting happening uh, in many places, largely by mail, that that means there is no such thing as election day. That's a, a mis, uh, misnomer. It's a month to vote, and it could be weeks to count the votes. And so journalists need to do a better job of explaining that to the public, explaining that you'll be getting a mail ballot 30 days before the election and that you need to take that seriously. And the mail delivery will be fine, but we all know that the mail delivery is a little slow right now. So if you really want to get your vote counted, maybe vote early and maybe even take it to one of these places where you can drop it off through the county registrar's system. I think that's a critical point, especially when President Trump and uh, the Attorney General Bill Barr, frankly, are trying to cast aspersions on uh, mail-in balloting and claiming it's fraudulent when it isn't, and we need to point that no out. No evidence of that. No, no widespread fraud in any shape or, or fashion. Uh, and in fact, there are whole states that do it and have done it successfully. Yeah, and polls today say a lot of Republicans, unfortunately, are believing there is, and it's a real problem, and it's up to us to cover that going forward. Well, the misinformation theme, it's, of course, part of this pandemic that we're dealing with. What do you hear from journalists about audience that, that refuse to believe facts and science? It's a problem. You know, it's a, it's a problem. Um, and I think there, again, you just need to do your job and you do the work and, and push back. Like at that class that I was at, a bunch of eighth graders in a, you know, in a chat, uh, in a Zoom call, you can imagine that it wasn't all serious, that they're making some quips in there. And one of them said, it's okay, COVID isn't real. And I stopped my presentation. I was like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. You need to understand that, that COVID-19 is real, that 200,000 Americans have, have died, that, that multiple factors more are going to have potentially long-term health implications for heart and lungs, et cetera. And so this is a real situation here. You know, uh, young people may not have the same risk uh, in terms of potential loss of life as uh, certainly older folks. But as we saw from San Diego State, it, it only takes a few people making bad decisions to really cause problems for our community. Yeah, a ripple effect throughout San Diego. Now, COVID-19 also brought the worst economic crisis in our lifetimes. How's the pandemic shaking up newsrooms, many of which were already being cut to the bone before this happened? Yeah, it's been brutal. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, it's been a tough at the Union Tribune. We had uh, across the board uh, furloughs. You know, but we kept working. We kept working through it. We've been for six months putting out a newspaper at home. I've been, I think I've been in the office two or three times in that span, and it's weird to go into a ghost building. I kind of don't know if we'll ever go back. But the Union Tribune is here to put out the news. Uh, KPBS is here to put out the news. Voice of San Diego and the television stations are here to put out the news. And they're doing it in, in, uh, in very difficult situations, either from home or going out on the streets to cover uh, you know, pandemic-related events or protests wearing masks, taking care of themselves, but it's hard. You know, it's hard, man. The, the, the mental toll is is difficult. Well, it is, and we have to remember, as, as we all know, you and I have been in newsrooms for a lot of years. It's a collaborative effort. You feed off the energy of each other, and it's tough to do it as individuals. And there's a personal toll to covering the news, especially in 2020. What, what do you hear from your colleagues remotely at the UT and elsewhere about burnout and the weight of these challenges? Huge, huge issue. I mean, I, I referenced the conference that we just had this past weekend at SBJ, one of the panels involved the Southern Californian, Dr. Tammy McCoy Arabayo, who's a, a therapist uh, who works with first responders and has helped people in really troubling uh, emotional times. You know, and, and she said it's okay to not to realize that it's not okay right now. So to you know, and also to take a break. If you can take a day, take a day. If you can take half a day, take half a day. The problem for us in the news business is that 
many of us are plugged in to it, you know, 6 a.m. to midnight, uh, sometimes past midnight. So, you know, there are many days where I personally aren't getting, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. I know a lot of my colleagues are putting out podcasts under blankets and in closets, you know, working from home with, with when there's an occasional Wi-Fi outage. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. And we can't get together for a beer and, and, and complain about it, you know. But I think, you know, my team is doing amazing work. My, my peers at the UT and around San Diego and the country are doing incredible, incredible work in difficult times. And I'm just grateful for their work. We're, we're kind of first responders in a way, too, not to compare us to some of these other, uh, you know, frontline workers that are doing incredible work from grocery workers to police officers and firefighters. But the, the news business is, is has taken some blows during this, but is really trying to get the, the real dope, straight information to people at an important time. Well, and absolutely is critical and it's important for SBJ to be there and, and, uh, and pushing all of this and protecting uh, everybody's First Amendment rights and, and our democracy as well. Yeah. I mean, I often say uh, a free press isn't free. Journalism costs money, but less journalism costs society. And, you know, that means that this isn't a, ch- a time for us to be asking people to pay for uh, subscriptions. It's, it's a time for us to be explaining to them that they are members. Like KPBS model, the Voice of San Diego model, those are good models because they're building memberships and communities. And I think all news outlets need to be doing that. That's the way forward here is that we're in this together. Uh, you help local news outlets, you help your community. That was Matt Hall, the editorial and opinion director of the San Diego Union Tribune, speaking with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer. That's it for the podcast today. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.